Hi everybody, welcome to Manus, and some of you are from here. Now we have a, a mixed group of people, so I tried to put together a talk that will speak to everybody. I'm primarily going to start uh, talking a little bit about discovering the power of data in the Canadian context, access to data in Canada, because I think it ties in nicely with some of the work that is ongoing here in Ireland, but will also give you some context of some background on access to data that may not be defined as open data. Open data, which I call uh, a new open data movement, as opposed to the open access to data movement, and I'll clarify what those two differences are, and um, discuss a little bit about uh, where we're going to go in the, the coming months and uh, weeks, months, and years uh, with regards to data and the Programmable City Project, and I'll leave it open to, um, to both uh, Dominique and to Peter to talk about uh, open data in Ireland, but I'll touch base a little bit throughout the presentation on some issues that are going on here. So discovering the power of data, my trajectory, and I think it's not an unusual one, um, is studying geomatics at university, where you have, in, in the Canadian context, you get to go to your map, uh, data and government information center, you get to speak to your data librarian, you get to speak to your map librarian, you have access to numerous amounts of data sets um, that have primarily been negotiated by the university and or consortia of research libraries to ensure that students and faculty have access to data to be able to do research on Canada. One of the issues that had emerged in Canada in the mid-1980s was um, an increase in the cost of census data to about 100% increase in cost, to the point where people could not afford, not even universities could afford to actually acquire data, and so Canadian students and Canadian faculty became experts on the US, so we actually lost a decade worth of Canadian knowledge because none of us could actually afford to buy our own demographic data about our own country. And so a number of universities got together and formed something called the Data Liberation Initiative where they formed a consortia purchasing group where they could purchase census data and other government data and make it exclusively available to faculty and students. So we start seeing the beginning of access to public data but not public as in people outside of faculty and students. Um, today, the Data Liberation uh, Initiative is very, very strong, and there's 75 research libraries that are a part of that. Then we go to the federal government setting. Uh, in 1999, we have the GeoConnections program, which is launched, and that is the beginning of the Canadian geospatial data infrastructure, which is basically how your country delivers uh, its geographic information to the public and to companies. So basically, all of your base maps, um, atlases, uh, transportation data, um, street networks, framework data, and so on. In the background, what an infrastructure kind of looks like, this is in the Canadian context, you have access, uh, sustainable communities in the Canadian context, a lot of Aboriginal communities, framework data, which is the data upon which everybody builds, skills, atlases, which is kind of visualization, technology, policy, standards, and so on. And we'll come back to this because we see this also a little bit in the open data type movement, the new open data movement, but not as explicitly as we see in the uh, emergence of spatial data infrastructures, which we start seeing in the mid-90s. 
Um, we have a program which was really the first open data program in Canada, and this was uh, launched in 1997, and this was GeoGratis, and it was in the days of FTP protocol, and it was essentially, we produce these data, they're legacy type of data, uh, we'll share them with the public under the current um, copyright legislation we had, which at the time was Crown Copyright, and you will have access to these data uh, under those conditions, but as we produce them within our legacy systems. If you needed to transform the data for your purposes, then sir, you were pointed to services where you could go and do that yourself. Um, it wasn't called open data, but it was really the first open data type of program in Canada. The next one was that came shortly thereafter was GeoBase, also part of the federal government family, and this was to ensure that Canadians could have access to street network files, base maps, uh, geo-referencing type of information. <coughs> what was really important here is that an accord was signed between all of the provinces and territories where they shared their data so that it could be mosaic into one seamless map for everyone. So we see uh, in the background not just the federal government delivering, but we're starting to see collaborations between the provinces and the territories. And we see an organization that's very, very powerful in Canada, at least on the geomatic side, and it's the Canadian Council on Geomatics. And they're the ones who negotiated these types of accords, and they were the ones who helped also spearhead the Canadian geospatial data infrastructure. On the civil society side, we start seeing um, social planning councils, which are kind of community-based research types of organizations, starting to access data, talking to other nonprofit types of organizations, getting their data and starting to present them back to them in community mapping projects, in, in small reports, in newsletters, getting people prepared for elections, but really being very data intensive because most civil society organizations don't have the capacity to actually do that themselves. Um, then we see the emergence shortly thereafter, this is in 1996, we see the Geographic and Numeric Information Systems in Canada, and this is a coalition across Canada of nonprofit organizations, much like social planning councils, who get together and group purchase data that have already been organized from a data reseller, almost like a consortium model, and then get those information out in visualizations, charts, information products, and so on, much like uh, the work that Arrow does. Um, again, very grassroots, very nonprofit, uh, not a lot of money, but because they're purchasing uh, data as a consortia, they're able to get a lot more data for cheaper. We start seeing the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, which is um, an, an association of about 3,500 municipalities across Canada. Um, when we start getting a bit more of a neoliberal agenda and downsizing of government spending, um, they start developing a quality of life indicator system. And, seeing all the bits and pieces are not that important there, but essentially uh, it's 24 of Canada's major cities collaborating together across provincial jurisdictions, which is very important because municipalities are under the jurisdiction of the provinces. So you can only, you must go to a national nonprofit organization to be able to speak to the federal government and lobby. And so they're starting to produce these quality of life indicator systems, and they're starting to discover the grief of developing an indicator, an indicator system every year with about 150 variables involved from multiple government departments, from multiple jurisdictions, and continuously having to haggle to be able to do that. And then we see something called the Community Data Program, which uh, creates its own portal, um, but also helps build community capacity on using data. Again, a consortium model because of the fact that data were actually sold back to Canadians. 
And this uh, is an interesting one because there's about 56 jurisdictions, about 1,000 members of this consortia, and they actually teach each other how to use data. They special customize uh, order, customize data across tabulations and so on. But what's important here is that very small geographies. And I know that uh, being, being able to do small geography analysis is very important in Ireland, and, and you just recently produced um, a base map to be able to do that. But these guys pre-order that because that's all about custom order, and it's incredibly expensive. So then we start seeing research settings. And again, this is still the 90s. This is the mid-90s. People are trying to get access to data. They're working together. They're collaborating. They're group purchasing. They're making information available. They're communicating. Researchers, uh, this is from the Geomatics and Cartographic Research Center, are starting to do some interesting thematic maps. They're collaborating with nonprofits, with small entities, and, and uh, with bigger entities to be able to produce interesting visualizations. Uh, in the case of the GC, uh, GCRC, the Geomatics and Cartographic Research Center, we work a lot in the north with the Inuit, and because bandwidth is terrible in the north, we had to build local area networks to be able to store data in the north that would geosynchronize um, once bandwidth was more free at night uh, with our servers in the south. But we also were starting to see issues where, with traditional knowledge, indigenous people wanted to maintain their knowledge themselves in situ where they lived. They didn't want the information coming south. They didn't want it managed by people in the south. However, they didn't have the infrastructure to do so. And so we had to help build this kind of infrastructure in the background so that they could start doing this and also being able to produce their own local maps. And this would be the kind of the backgrounder that we would have for some of our atlases, and I can go into some details of that later. What's important with, the, with these two diagrams is data aren't just a table full of numbers. There's massive infrastructures behind them to deliver them, a lot of policy issues, a lot of legal issues, and a lot of cultural issues. What we also saw with research data was a lot of research data consultations with a lot of the granting agencies, Library and Archives Canada, and again, the research libraries coming together, pushing the government to either preserve data, to do data consultations, and to try and get a handle on what's going on in research libraries, what's going on in the hard sciences, what's going on in the social sciences, what's going on with administrative data, and how are those being preserved and being disseminated. We also see Research Data Canada, which is like, we don't have a National Science Foundation in Canada. We actually, we have no such entity, but we do have granting councils, and we have the National Research Council of Canada, and they take the lead in terms of trying to get scientific data out. Again, in their case, it's very interesting. Their discourse is always to scientists, not necessarily to the public, even to this day. And then we start seeing some really interesting research on the preservation of data in the sciences and the preservation of data uh, in government types of contexts. And we start seeing these large multinational research projects to do so. And then we start seeing subtleties. And in this case, it's how do indigenous people manage their knowledge? And what are the licensing issues related to collective rights to traditional knowledge, which is a group of people who own that knowledge versus uh, rights to a creative product which is owned by an individual and how do we actually try to deal with those things and so we had a legal team uh, that project's just finishing up now that actually started looking at these kinds of issues so we start seeing this kind of story where it's university librarians research librarians data and GIS librarians library and archives Canada granting council scientists natural and social geomatics civil society organizations and the multiple levels of government getting involved but it's not quite open data, but we're starting to see, uh, this is just one example of a geospatial data infrastructure, and we're starting to see 
institutional frameworks emerge, whether it be an archive like the DRI, um, the Digital Repository of Ireland, or like the work that Arrow is doing, we're starting to see these types of administrations, policies, and laws, and framework data, which I discussed earlier, access networks such as catalogs, metadata, web services, visualization and atlases, and technological standards. So when you look at infrastructures, or as, as Rob would call them, cyber infrastructures, they have all of these things, or they would have, uh, and more. There would be politics and uh, governmentality and other things, which we'll talk about later, which would be the assemblages related to data, which demonstrate how complex data actually are. Again, to try and unravel the fact that they are more than just series of numbers that we take for granted as, as unique uh, arrangements of facts. In the background, so this is, now we're getting into about 2001, 2002, 2003. We start seeing platforms emerging more like 2005 with Google Maps and so on. So in the background, these things are happening as all of these other things that I just discussed. And, and I would love to spend some time maybe with some of the new media people and the media studies people to talk about the ethos that's created as a result of this. Because there's a new ethos that emerges and we start seeing the people getting involved in new open data are not the same people that were involved in open access to data. They're very different communities and they have a very different ethos and a very different way of approaching the issue. We see groups like Civic Access, which is the first Canadian list that emerges in 2005. And we see people leveraging blogs in the blogosphere again in 2005 to start advocating for access to public data, <coughs> sharing information. And because Canada is such a large country, traveling from east to west, north and south is incredibly expensive. This is one of the few ways we can actually communicate with each other. What really gets things kick-started for the new open data movement in Canada is the UK Guardian's Free Our Data campaign. This was incredibly influential. It gave us, it gave us and it gave many others something to mobilize around, particularly the Ordnance Survey. For anyone who does geomatics, we always found the Ordnance Survey in the UK to be the most regressive in terms of cost recovery. And so when this campaign came up, we were very excited to see it, and we could see others pick up on it. Then we see the, the usdata.gov. Again, this is in 2009. Both of those projects happened in 2009. And then we start seeing all kinds of open data definitions, and we start seeing different types. This is just a sample uh, of them, and we rarely go back to this one, which is the 1992 uh, Rio um, Sustainable Development Conference, where they have the an entire chapter dedicated to access to public data, which I find interesting that we forget to look at that one, but that's actually one of the best ones, because it really deconstructs and unpackages everything that needs to be done around data as an organization or as in a developing country kind of context. The definitions that win out is uh, the Open Knowledge Foundation's definition. This is how they define uh, open data. And this is generally what most people around the world who are involved in new open data um, adopt and embrace this particular definition. The new one that's coming out, it's been out for a couple of years, and we're starting to see it pop up all over the place, is the five-star deployment, and this is as a result of linked data, and, and again, movements that are coming out of the UK, and we'll see where this takes us. Uh, there's some very interesting projects uh, ongoing here in Ireland that's, that are advancing this out in Galway, and we went to visit some of these people uh, do, doing linked data last week as part of the Insight project. So we'll see where that goes. It's very, very interesting. Um, getting here is very difficult at this time. Most organizations are about here and here. They're certainly not here and here. Very few are there, and actually the tools to be able to get there are just, they're not in place at the moment. 
Um, but when we look at Canada, we see that cities really take the lead. So Nanaimo, 2009, Edmonton, Toronto, uh, the city of Vancouver, and the city of Ottawa are the big ones that take it on. And then you start seeing them collaborating with each other to start developing uh, with the Canadian Internet Public Policy Interest Clinic, which is a legal think tank that looks at all of these issues and advocate in the public interest. And in Ireland, I think the country is perhaps too small for this kind of interest group to emerge or to exist. But certainly, I'm on the lookout for who these lawyers are, because certainly there are some lawyers who can parlay these types of issues. It would be interesting to hear what they have to say about it. But they come together in what they call the G4 plus one, because Montreal wasn't open data at the time, um, to discuss licenses and to get lawyers talking to other lawyers, because lawyers are risk averse, and lawyers didn't want to have these open licenses. We didn't have this PSI license like you have here. We have a different kind of regime. And so that was very interesting because the, the open licenses that we have now are in Canada are very close to a Creative Commons type of license. We're up to 36 cities in Canada, uh, and it covers most of the Canadian population. Not all, but most of the Canadian population. Now, this is not to say that they all have very rich data sets and that it's not low-hanging fruit and that they have the best portals and the best catalogs, but we certainly are starting to see uh, a very interesting um, adoption of open data principles and also of open government principles at the municipal level. The provinces were the last groups to come on side, and we, and we certainly don't have all of them yet. There are 13 provinces and territories, and we really only have five in Canada that have adopted this type of practice. Yet, it's really at the level of the provinces where we have rich data, such as uh, in Canada's the division of powers means that it's the provinces and the territories that are in charge of health, social services, education. And so the really rich data sets are at this level, and they're the hardest to get at at this time. Uh, and then we have the federal government, which I went over a few of the different initiatives. Um, and this is the federal government's kind of open data portal that we have now that was uh, launched in 2010. We also see really interesting citizen engagement types of apps, uh, which is, you know, collaborative budget making types of apps. And this is a, a project that came out of the city of Montreal. And so how to collaboratively decide uh, through this kind of scale on how the budget's going to go. If you make a decision on one end, what's going to happen to something else in the budget. We're starting to see, well, these ones were the first types of apps that were emerging all over the place. And one of the reasons was, is if you want to convince government and the public that open data is good, you have to give them something that they love. And this was basically, where's the best outdoor skating rinks in Montreal that have the best ice? So it's a kind of crowdsourced project with the recreational data in the background. And at any given time in the winter, you can find out where the best place to skate is. The other thing is it's kind of cheesy and cute and, and lovely and a kind of community type of, of app, but what it does is it demonstrates to government that open data aren't scary. Because you don't talk about transparency if you're trying to advocate for open data. You first start talking about recreation and access to services and you start showing that. Um, then they start getting into, in the city of Montreal, once they started getting some buy-in, they started talking a bit more about um, electoral types of representations or accountability apps. So what are your politicians up to? What are they voting on? How many times have they showed up? Have they not showed up? How many women and men are there? What have they had to say? RSS feeding, um, the different media feeds that they have, and so on and so forth. So you start, and there's about 10 of these different apps in Canada right now for all levels of government, and they're very, very interesting. You start, we start seeing some public health things where you take 
um, the um, health um, reports that have come out on um, cleanliness and so on for different restaurants. And so before you go to eat at a particular restaurant, you can look at the app to see what, well, how, what the quality of it is um, and uh, if, it's, if it's had any health restrictions or violations. And then we start seeing, and this is where the issue of open access and open data get tricky because in my world, I would call this an open data and an open access project, but the open data advocates might not um, because of the way the data are represented. It's hard to grab the data in the background from these things. But these particular population health tools are, are speaking to the population. So generally, people can't, not all people can read a spreadsheet or a CSV file, let alone an RDF file at this point in time. But if you actually start presenting information in a way that communicates to them in unique and interesting visualizations, they start getting the picture of what is unraveling in their neighborhoods in a population or social determinants of health kind of context. So we're starting to see chief medical officers of health releasing data in this way. We're also starting to see interesting um, collaborations between what we call geeks and non-geeks working together to, to collect information on the street. And in this case, and of course it's Montreal, so there's always people kissing. You can't take a picture of Montreal without someone kissing. It's really hard. Um, but you know, so here we have a context where people are going out and actually doing an accessibility audit in the city and then taking the data from that audit and making a map of it and then using those data ad to advocate for more physical accessibility. Um, it's a kind of crowdsourced project, but it's also got a very specific purpose and it won a kind of a hacking for health type of contest, a bit of money, and in true Montreal style, they used their money to buy everybody a beer at the end of the day. And it was very interesting to have 50 wheelchairs try and find a cafe to have a beer at the end of the day, so it was very entertaining as well. But then you start seeing um, these transparency type of apps because once a city or a province or a government has decided and has a mandate, it's very hard for them to pull out of an open data project or an open government kind of project. And once you've done that, we're starting to see the groups picking up corruptions. And in Montreal, there's a lot of corruption with construction companies. And so they started looking at procurement data um, and started to analyze those types of data and putting on these big kind of anti-corruption types of hackathons. And hackathons are basically these things. And Dennis uh, Parvanoff is here from uh, Ireland, and he's put on some, some great hackathons. I've been to a couple of his so far. And this is kind of what they look like. It's a lot of people working together with some laptops and, and having a good time under a particular theme. Um, and then now we're starting to see entrepreneurs. Now, the case of Ireland is very special because I didn't know that in Canada we don't have this big business interest in the way that you have it here in Ireland. We haven't had, of course, the same kind of financial issues that you have in, uh, uh, in Canada as you do in Ireland. But what we saw in Canada, what we see in Canada is small companies starting to show up using some open data to develop some new apps and selling the services related to those apps. So that's kind of the, the best of both worlds, and in this case it's something to help nonprofits. Um, but we don't have this big business interest with IBM and Intel in the same way that I'm seeing them here. Um, and that's something that I'll be exploring with time. We are seeing the federal government, this is the first federal government uh, grant that went to an open data group Again, uh, this one is in the city of Montreal. I pick a lot of the Montreal stuff because it's not accessible to English-speaking people. So I try to, to feature to what we call rest of Canada ROC, the rock. <coughs> so we try to, I try to show the rock some of the stuff that's going on in Quebec. So for the, for the rock and now, I guess, the, the rest of the world. Um, this one is one of the first uh, interoperable uh, OGC 
um, standards-based type of app that was developed uh, using all kinds of traffic data on how you can avoid uh, construction in a city. So in Canada, we have two seasons, winter and construction. And uh, construction season is not funny um, when you're trying to drive in a city because it's always under construction. And so this is, uh, and this is now being picked up across the country. And it's a, it's a very, very interesting new collaboration. And what I'm excited about is it means that the open data community are learning about really complex standards. Okay? And we're seeing advocacy. Um, so uh, nonprofit organizations, actually dedicated nonprofit organizations, dedicated to liberating the data, such as the BC Institute and also Open North, which is a, a national organization. Um, earlier on, we had data negotiations that were going on, and this is again coalitions of nonprofit groups sitting down with government in a closed room trying to negotiate access to data, and we're seeing kind of private sector, public sector, cloud computing types of citizen science, open data types of projects on things such as groundwater maintenance. And we're also seeing government being taken to court by environmental groups because they're not releasing the data. In this case, it was uh, pollution data um, that the government was not releasing. It was mines tailings because the mining companies were advocating against having those data released. But the courts agreed in favor with Ecojustice and the Great Lakes United and actually forced them to release the mine tailings data. And so these kinds of activities are also starting to happen, which is very interesting. And we're finally starting to see some funding, not much, but we're starting to see granting agencies saying, if you wish to receive money from us, you will manage your data, you will archive your data, and you will make your data accessible after all the kind of publication embargoes. And in Canada, again, and I, and I think there's some of this starting here, although you had a little bit of a, a step back with the freedom of information kind of process that just came in in Ireland a couple of days ago. But the information commissioners across Canada and the provinces and territories also signed a resolution to um, have open by design. So these are our freedom of information people. But it's very interesting, they took an extra step. They went freedom of information, they also went open government, and they also went open data. So they've actually overstepped their mandate somewhat. It was very, very interesting for us to see this because the information and privacy commissioners have an awful lot of power in Canada. I don't know how they're power, how, if they're powerful or if you have them here, but they're very powerful in Canada. And then in the context of the programmable security, <coughs> right now, uh, this would be the, the question that I would be investigating. I would be looking at something like Generally, I mean, I gave you a very descriptive overview of uh, open data in the Canadian context and gave you a kind of brushstroke look at the kinds of things that we're seeing emergent as a result of open data. But there's a whole bunch of political economy that we didn't talk about. There's a lot of legal aspects that we didn't talk about. And there's multiple communities involved, as in the context here in Ireland, there's a lot of private sector interest. Um, the project will be looking at both uh, Dublin and Boston. And we're trying, we're in the process of figuring out how we're going to take a look at those things. But this will be the question that I will be looking at. And it won't be exclusively open data. It will be data in general and data in different contexts. Um, uh, Rob has a, his assemblages type of framework. And this would be the kinds of ways that we would approach looking at either data sets, data initiatives, data programs, data themselves. And just to give you some basic kind of little touch on what we might be looking at is, you know, things like smart cities and connected cities and community-based type of open data projects. We'll be looking at infrastructures as discussed. 
uh, policies, regulation, and so on. Uh, people, how they operate and how they work in these kinds of contexts. Different activities from hackathons to, to selling to um, open street maps, some of the stuff that Peter does. Places and organizations where these things are happening, who's talking about these things and why they're doing them. Why they're doing these things. And, uh, and of course, data types and forms and, and starting to develop some theory around how these things represent us and how these things represent people and how they co-shape each other in time and in space. And um, I'll leave it to Dominique to take it from here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.